can have your Bibles handy this evening. Uh, we are speaking somewhat topically this evening about um, the false prophet. Last time we were together in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we talked about trying the spirits, whether they be of God. And as we contemplated that warning together, um, the reason why we were warned about trying the spirits, as John said, is because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Verse 1 tells us of 1 John 4. And I told you last time we were together that we were going to park on that idea of the false prophet next time, and that's this time, and that for a very specific reason. Even if we know better, the character of the false prophet is often very different than what we imagine it to be. I warn you about the false prophet. The scriptures warn us about the false prophet. And there's something perhaps that that works into your mind as it relates to the nature of the false prophet. Very similar to perhaps our regular imaginings of the devil helped by popular culture who we can falsely think of as a person who always does overtly wicked things and wants the utter destruction of everything and everybody, our imagination of the false prophet might do the same. We might lift up in our minds or concoct in our minds the idea of a man who is obviously wicked, the idea of a man who wakes up and says, who can I destroy today? The idea of a destructive man, of a pernicious man, of a deceitful man in every way, shape, or form, and a man that, that uh, in, in, in every sense of the word is absolutely bent toward wickedness. But... For those of you who have uh, thought through things perhaps a a little bit deeper or who have read the scriptures and have connected the dots on some of these things, uh, these imaginings are actually quite incorrect. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 14 tells us that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And in this we are reminded that oftentimes... The most godless things are prevented, are, excuse me, are presented in very good packages. Wickedness is not presented quite regularly as something that is wicked. It's presented as something that is good. Whether that is entertaining, whether that is fulfilling, or whether it is actually explicitly presented as moral, and maybe in, in fact in some senses it is, by the reckoning of society as it relates to morality. The packages that wickedness comes in, the packages that error comes in, are often ones that are very, very similar to, to good. That, that might even look true. They don't look like wickedness. They don't sound like wickedness. Maybe even these things are presented as wanting to help, wanting to improve, wanting to progress. Just as angel can, uh, just as Satan can present himself as an angel of light, but all these things in a manner which is in opposition to the character, the word, and the will of God. These false prophets—they're well spoken, oftentimes. They are engaging, oftentimes. Maybe even delightful, winsome, disarming, interesting. They come with the best intentions, oftentimes, not the worst. 
If you were to sit down and talk to them, they would not tell you about how they hope to see everybody in hell. They would not tell you about how their, their greatest goal is to, to, to see the destruction of those who sit under their teaching. This would not be their intent, their purpose, their desire in, at, at face value. And it is unto this end that John has spent much time in this epistle warning about these people. John did not spend a good portion of 1 John chapter 2, and he will not spend a portion of 1 John 4 warning against false teachers because these false teachers are so obviously antichrist. If they were obviously antichrist, John would not have to spend so much time telling us that they're antichrist, describing how they are antichrist. John was not speaking to people who had no concept of the word of God, no concepts of the scriptures. Much to the contrary, John says, they came from us, but they were not of us. These are people who they knew. These are people who they had connected with. These were people who they were listening to. And not because they were hoping to fall into heresy or apostasy. And so this is the way we need to orient our minds around the false teacher. We need to orient our minds around someone who is interesting, intriguing. Not someone who is overtly wicked, although, you know, it's nice when they are. It makes it easy on us. But those are not the ones that we are most being warned about here. Now, last week we talked about trying the spirits themselves. Maybe I should have reversed these messages because you're going to have to think through what we talked about last time we were together as it relates to this concept of trying the spirits, as it relates to those, those avenues of trying the spirits. We try the spirits as it relates to the claims of, of, of Jesus Christ, right? The claims of him as a man, the claims of him as God, the claims of his person, the claims of his work. And so all of that comes into what we're thinking this evening as it relates to our identification of the false prophet. And we are going to do so through the teachings. So we, we've done so through the teachings of John. And now we're going to expand that teaching to Jesus and Peter. By extension, Jude, although we're not actually going to go to Jude this evening. It's just the, the, the connection that he has to Peter. So that when we hear this exhortation, try the spirits whether they be of God. And when we consider the kind of spiritual sobriety in which we must operate in order to be successful in doing so, because many false prophets are gone out into the world, we are confronted with the, ality, uh, with the reality that these false teachers, they are dangerous, but they are in disguise. Which means we need to uh, uh, approach this idea of trying the spirits with great clarity, sobriety, and seriousness. It is not just the unbeliever whom the false prophet is seeking to overthrow, but also the believer indwelled by the Spirit of God. And if we aren't careful to walk in that Spirit, if we aren't careful to try the spirits, we are still entirely susceptible to the deceits and the predations of these false prophets. So today I want to walk us through the warnings in Scripture surrounding these false prophets and through it gain both insight and understanding of just how these men and women operate in the world. And the root of these warnings comes from Jesus himself. If we were to trace back all of the warnings about the false prophet, the false teacher, we would trace it back to Jesus's teachings himself. And these teachings began in what we call today the Sermon on the Mount toward the end in Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse, verse 13, Jesus says this, 
Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate. That straight there, notice the word straight there is the idea like, a, like, like the bearing straight, like, like two pieces of land that come together and there's a narrow passageway of the sea from one body of water to the other. It's the idea of narrow here. It's not the idea of, 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 of a straight line per se, but a, a narrow entrance into a broader body of water type idea. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, he says in verse 15, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven." Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Through Jesus' teachings, we begin immediately to piece together a very interesting characteristic of those whom Jesus calls false prophets. Jesus is speaking about that narrow way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Narrow in that the way is found only through Jesus Christ. Not through good works, not through good words, not through religion, not through discipline. These are not things that, that, that bring a person to God. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And then this lays the foundation for that false prophet warning. That false, that, that teachers... That, that, that any man, representing himself or not, who comes to Christ will co who comes to God will come to God through Christ. It is not about whether he is a good teacher. It is not about whether he was a, is a charismatic speaker. It is not about whether or not he presents himself in a good front. It is not about whether or not he is very religious. It is not about whether or not he is very disciplined. It is not about how well he knows his Bible. It is about he who bears the fruit of one who has followed Christ. The way that leads to life is a narrow way defined by faith exclusively in the revealed word of Jesus Christ. And in this context, Jesus warns of false prophets whom he describes as coming in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. This is where we get the idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing. The concept of a wolf in sheep's clothing is someone who is not who he presents himself to be. However, once again... I really want you to think about what Jesus is describing here, because this is an area where the, the common visual, visualization, the attempt to visualize the concept of a wolf in sheep's clothing actually does a disservice to the substance of the warning. When we think of the idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing, what is often impressed upon us is the idea of a wolf wearing a sheep costume. 
And this might conjure up images from uh, cartoons we have seen in the past where some anthropomorphized animal dresses up like, like, like a person or, or maybe those times where you would see, you know, the cartoon where you've got the one kid and then you've got the other kid on his shoulders and they're wearing a really long trench coat to try to pass themselves off as an adult or something to that effect. Or, you know, any other of the cartoonish tropes that we might use to think of this idea of someone disguising themselves as someone else. And the problem as we think about these sorts of uh, pictures of the disguises is that in order to show us that there is a disguise, we always think of the ways in which that disguise doesn't measure up to the task, right? All of the ways in which the disguise is not very clear, because if it were clear, then you wouldn't know that anyone's wearing a disguise because they're wearing a disguise. Now, in reality, if someone is wearing a disguise, the point is that you don't know that they're in disguise. That's, that's the point of a disguise. If they wanted you to know, then they'd make it absurd and cartoonish. But people that are actually in disguise don't want you to know it. And they go very far out of their way to make sure that you don't know it. All of these images to that, to, to, to that extent, or all of our conjurings in this way to that extent, uh, do somewhat of a disservice to the idea itself. Jesus actually describes here a prophet who comes in sheep's clothing, but inwardly is a ravening wolf. What that means is that they don't look any different on the outside. They actually just look like a sheep. That's the point of the disguise. They look like a sheep and maybe a very good looking sheep. Maybe one of the best ones in the flock if you were just assessing by the externalities. But by all accounts, what Jesus is speaking here is a person who, in knowledge, in speech, in appearance even, is not inherently distinguishable from a follower of Jesus, but they are inwardly ravening wolves. So then how do we tell them apart? Well, we've been studying that. We considered it last week, trying the spirits, whether they are of God. And we were connecting 1 John 4 to 1 John 2. Ye shall know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus said here. Jesus said, you don't, you, 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 not only should you not seek to draw grapes from, from uh, uh, figs from thistles, so draw, draw grapes from, from thorny bushes, but you can't. They're going to present themselves as a fig tree, but you won't be able to actually draw any fruit from them. This word, fruit. Now, John said in 1 John chapter 2, look who doesn't love the brethren. He said in John chapter 2, look at the person who's telling you that it's okay to love the world and love Jesus at the same time. And by the world, we mean the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Look for the person whose life is invested in the world, no matter how they present themselves. In 1 John 4, look for the person who's denying the Son. Look for the person who denies his humanity. That's what 1 John 4 is about, right? Then we connected it to Paul's teaching. Look for one who's denying his divinity. Then we connected it to Galatians. Look for one who is teaching another gospel. We connect it to 1 John chapter 1. Look for one who says he has no sin or he does not sin. 
All of these have been standards by which the fruit of a man can be born. What is he teaching? Not how good of a teacher is he. What is he teaching? Not how good his content on history is. Not how well he understands his Greek and his Hebrew. What is he teaching about Jesus? What is the content? He might have really good arguments. He might be the most biblically knowledgeable person you know. He might be very compelling and interesting. He might be very nice, very charismatic. But the fruit which his life is producing will tell us. If the fruit is evil, and by evil we don't mean wicked, it's simply not spiritual. If he's not producing spiritual fruit, an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. And you shall know the teacher, including the one standing behind this pulpit, by his fruit. Okay, so we've corrected in our minds this idea that we can recognize these guys by just looking for the sheep and finding the one that's a little bigger than the rest or finding the one who has his paws sticking out underneath the the, the sheep-looking legs or or finding the one with the zipper on his back. Yeah, if if, if it were that easy, right? If they forgot to take their, their tag off the sheep costume, if they make it that easy, fantastic. But that's not going to work for most of them. Jesus then goes on to describe how convincing these false men are. We read it already. Let's read it again. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Notice the depth of the deception. Jesus warns, That not everyone who even associates himself with Jesus in word and in tongue is actually associated with him in deed and in truth. That there will be many in that day who will be guilty though they associated with Jesus. And notice he says that there will be many on that day who will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? Did we not cast out devils in thy name? Did we not in thy name do many wonderful works? And we say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. You just said we'll know them by their fruit. And here it is, Jesus is saying that, that these men will do, that they, that they do in Jesus' name. They will, they, they will preach in his name. And they will cast out devils in his name and they'll do wonderful works in his name. Well, uh, yeah, okay, so maybe their words aren't aligned with Jesus, but aren't, wouldn't, we have to say these works? The, that, that, they're, that they're actually doing the works, right? But notice here, notice in this passage, notice while Jesus is warning them of these things, he does not say, by their works ye shall know them. He says, by their fruit ye shall know them. And this is important. There are plenty of people in this world doing moral things. There are plenty of people in this world who hate immoral things. There are plenty of people in this world who want to encourage and motivate and inspire. And they will do it in the name of one who they call Jesus. Do you recall the warnings where Jesus says in the, in the last days that many would come in his name saying, I am the Christ? Jesus' name has always been a very popular name. But not everybody who claims the name of Jesus 
comes in the name of Jesus. Not everyone who uses the name Jesus is actually representing Jesus of Nazareth. But what is the fruit of a disciple of Jesus Christ? What's the difference between someone doing works or someone bearing fruit? What is the difference between that person who will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, I've prophesied in your name. I've cast out devils in your name. I've done in your name many wonderful works. And Jesus will look and say, you did all of these things in the name of one called Jesus, but you never had me yourself. None of what you did was actually spiritual in essence. What's the difference between that man and by their fruit ye shall know them? Well, our memory verse for this month, John chapter 13, verse 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Jesus said in John 15, Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. A desire to separate from the things that are in the world. John says that's what the believer does. He does not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. An understanding of the things which are from the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. No man can understand the things of the Spirit unless the Spirit teach him. That is fruit. Even an unbelieving man in the name of Jesus can do wonderful works. But does that man bear fruit? Does he bear the fruit of the Spirit? Does he bear the fruit of one who is in Christ? Is he a follower of Christ? Is he keeping Christ's commandments? That's fruit. This has nothing to do with whether or not the teacher is a nice person. Whether or not he's a good teacher. Whether or not he knows the Bible. Whether or not he has a grasp of spiritual power even whether or not he's effective in the spirit realm even. These men cast out devils in Christ's name. He can do and be all these things. And he can still hear on that day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, take note of that. I never knew you. Ye that work iniquity. Many people will draw out of Matthew 7 the proof text, a, one of the proof texts for the fact that you can lose your salvation. I was talking to a young man in the jail about this a few weeks ago. He said, how is it possible? How is it at all possible that a person can cast out devils and do works in Jesus' name and still not end up in heaven? He said, he, that must be someone who lost his salvation. He was there, he was in, he was doing the work of God, and then he lost his salvation, he was out. But you know, Jesus did not say, depart from you, I stopped knowing you. What will he say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, I don't know who you are. We've never met before. I've never knew you. 
whatever you'd said or did in my name, you didn't do it for me because you were not my follower. You were not one of mine. Depart from me. I never knew you. This is not about people who were in Christ and then who at some point apostatized and lost their salvation. The Bible doesn't even talk about that. This is about someone who never knew Christ and whom Christ never knew. And by their fruits you will know them. To finalize our thinking on this, I want to take you to one other passage of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're actually going to walk through the entire passage. It's not going to be as comprehensive as perhaps it could otherwise be. I'll preach through 2 Peter at some point and, and, and we'll take a little more time here. But in 2 Peter 2, we find it's very similar to the book of Jude. They're, they're, they're very similar in many ways. But we find a warning against false teachers. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction." And many shall follow their pernicious, that word meaning destructive, ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Now I'm going to stop here. We're halfway through a verse, but I'm going to stop here for a minute. Notice here, Peter is writing to a group of believers and he says that these false teachers will represent themselves in a way and then through covetousness with feigned words, fake words, with words that, that are, are conjured up within them but are not genuine and spiritual, they will make merchandise of you. Believers. This is a warning to believers. And as he warns about the false teacher, he talks about their denials of Christ, about their damnable heresies, about their destruction, and this first attribute, that they, through covetousness and with feigned words, shall make merchandise of you. These men will be men who want something. The idea of making merchandise gives the idea, gives the, the implication that what they're looking for is uh, financial gain. And if we think about it, that's one of the primary motivations for uh, false teachers throughout the ages. They recognize that religion is something that has a measure of subjectivity to it, that there are many undiscerning and many gullible. Therefore, religion is an easy way to make a buck and to make a buck for not actually having to do a whole lot. And so he says they'll make merchandise of you. They want money or things or comfort or ease, and they have decided, whether deliberately or otherwise, that being a spiritual representative is the way to do it. And they put on the face, and they put in their mouths the correct words, and they convince the church that they are the real deal in order that they might fleece the flock of God. We continue. I'll begin again in verse 3. And through covetousness... Shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not? For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell, 
down to hell, excuse me, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that afterwards should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, being not, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. We come thus to the next characteristic of the false prophet, the fruit of their lives which reveals their heart. Peter warns that they are men and women that are presumptuous and self-willed. They are those who walk after the flesh. They are earthly in focus. And you have perhaps met some of these folks before. You have perhaps met someone like this before, where they speak to the fact that they are a believer. They say that they've believed in Jesus. Uh, They are religious in nature. But when it comes down to actual spiritual discernment, you find that their focus is entirely earthly in manner. That when you speak of spiritual things, it turns very quickly to an earthly focus. I was talking with my brother just before church night. And, and uh, Josh was saying that, that now that he's a believer, that he has a, a different focus, a different focus for his business, a different focus for how he's orienting his life. And we had talked about the fact that there, there was a new perspective. And that new perspective is a outworking of the fact that priorities change when your priorities are upon the spiritual. And in fact, they change when you understand the spiritual. And no matter how religious a person may be, no matter how much they know about the things of the, of the Bible, it is apparent to one who is spiritual when there is one who does not understand the spiritual. Now, it may not be apparent right off the bat. It may not be apparent from first listen. It may not be apparent, in fact, for a little while. You may have to dig a little bit to get to the point where there's a spiritually... Um, substantive conversation where you can recognize the things that I'm talking about on a spiritual plane are things that are absolutely foreign to this person. But this is the false teacher. Presumptuous, self-willed, earthly in focus. They may be very, very interested in making a nice big church, but the manner in which they're going to do so is going to be very earthly in focus. Their focus is going to be on the ways to attract people to win friends, to influence, rather than anything having to do with the spiritual. The spiritual will not be on their radar. And they may be very, very effective at bringing people in and putting them in the seats. But it will not be on a spiritual plane. It will be on an earthly plane. It will be by earthly reasonings. Look for this. Look for the earthly plane. Look for the person who walks after the flesh, 
who pursues their lusts. And also, specifically, the Bible speaks of those who are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, that word dignities here in our King James Bibles is actually the word, the Greek word for glory. And glories, in a, uh, the, the, obviously here we're not speaking of glory in the context of something uh, that, that emanates glory in that sense, but rather glories in the plural would certainly be angelic beings. In this case, most likely demonic beings. One of the very clear and obvious fruits of the false teacher from generation to generation is their handling and their understanding of the spirit realm because they do not understand the spiritual. They may even have some measure of power in the spiritual, as we've said, right? Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and in your name uh, do many wonderful works? They may have some sort of method by which they are able to influence the spirit realm, but they don't actually understand it. Many of those people, all of the people that are dealing in the occult, they deal with spiritual things, mediums. They are actually interacting with some sort of spirit being. There's no doubt about that with the ones that are legitimate. They're they're, they're dealing with something. But they have no idea the kind of power they're dealing with because they do not understand the spirit realm. They are manipulating things in the spirit realm, more, more often being manipulated by things in the spirit realm. They think they have a handle on it. They think they understand what they're doing, but they don't understand. They can't understand because only the Spirit can give us insight into the spiritual. And if you have not the Spirit of God, you cannot understand the things of the spiritual. And because these false teachers do not actually understand the spiritual, they may have a handle on it to some degree. They may be able to manipulate it to some degree. They may be able to see things done in the spiritual to some degree. But you know that they do not understand spiritual because the way they interact with spirits. One of the clear and obvious fruits is that they... They seek to express and demonstrate power over the the spirit realm. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. When you turn on the television and you find one of those preachers who is binding demons, who is rebuking devils, and usually it's the devil of somebody who's unwell or whatever the case may be, who is rebuking Satan, you know immediately they have no idea anything about the spirit realm. They do not know of, which they, uh, of what they speak. They do not know of the kind of power that they're dealing with. In Jude, we connected this uh, a couple of weeks ago, right in Jude, where, where the scriptures say even Michael the archangel would not bring railing accusations against Satan. Even angels, Peter says, which are greater both in power and might, would not dare to speak evil of spiritual authorities. But these men and women dare to do so. And because they dare to do so, because they interact with a realm of which they know not, you can be rather confident that they have no idea. They do not have insight into the spirit realm. And that's because they do not have a spiritual teacher. Because only the spirit of God can give us insight into the spiritual. And they do not have the spirit of God. These men and women, they rebuke these authorities. They seek to bind these authorities. Peter describes them as natural, brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. He's not pulling any punches in his language here about these folks. He says they're like feral and useless animals. They have plenty of energy, plenty of activity, but absolutely no value whatsoever. 
They eat your food, they demand your time, but they serve no purpose. And that's what false teachers, they take your money, they take your time, they demand plenty of, uh, of religious devotion, but they have no spiritual value in them whatsoever. You will not grow under them because you cannot extract a fig tree from a thistle. It just can't happen. You might get platitudes. You might get motivation. The world is very good. There's lots of good motivational speakers out there, people that will really rev up your engine and get you going. It does not take the Spirit of God to rev up a human engine. What they will not give you is any sort of spiritual fruit. You won't grow. You will not be brought closer to Christ. By their fruits, you will know them. They are corrupt. They are tainted. They are spiritually valueless. We continue. Uh, in verse 13. Spots are they and, blame, and blemish, uh, excuse me, spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. They're playing games. They're fellowshipping with us. They'll sit down with us. They'll fellowship with us. They'll sound the part. They'll look the part. You will not be able to distinguish them immediately as they feast with you. But they're spots. They're blemishes. Jude says spots in your love feast. The love feast was the meal that the early church would have around the Lord's table. They would not just have communion together, but they would actually uh, partake in a meal together. And then in that meal, they would partake together in communion. And that was called the Feast of Charity or the Love Feast. And within that feast, uh, these would be there. They would be a part of this. They would be a part of this fellowship. There would be that communion with them on that level of knowledge and understanding of the things of the Bible and of how the church works and of how Christians think. But... No spiritual value in them. Verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, and they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way. They feast with you, they sound like you, they get along with you, but they are corrupted in heart. You often hear... Um, in one circle or another. There was a scandal in the Catholic Church, right? There's been a scandal in the Southern Baptist Church. There's been a scandal in, in, in any number of, of denominations or conventions or churches having re related to uh, the covering up of sexual indiscretions and wickedness among the, the leaders in churches. These men who will get up every week and they will teach and they will preach, but they're predators. And they see the church as a wonderful way to gain the credibility necessary to, pr to, to prey on the innocent. To prey on those who might look up to them and trust them. That's what's being described here. Taints in the church. Spots, blemishes in the feast. Those that have forsaken the right way. As John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Their hearts are corrupted. But they've been in the church their whole life. They know how to play the game. They sound right. They look right. They're very good at the game. But inwardly, they're ravening wolves. 
We continue in verse 15. And are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. We come now to the deeper implications of this warning against the false teacher. The things which are reflective of Jesus' own warnings about the men who prophesy in the Lord's name and in his name cast out devils and in his name do many wonderful works, but of whom Jesus never knew. Peter describes here men and women who speak great swelling words of vanity. That word vanity meaning emptiness. They have a lot of words, but not a lot of substance. Many words, empty words. No spiritual substance in them. Peter describes them as alluring through the lust of the flesh. We think of this as as immorality or covetousness, right? That's what we think of when we think of the lust of the flesh. But the flesh wants things which are perhaps not so glaringly wicked. We have this movement in our country called the seeker-friendly movement. And the idea of the seeker-friendly movement is that we are going to bring people in through hop and music. We're going to bring people in through really nice buildings. We're going to have that coffee shop. And we're going to have all of these wonderful places for people to connect. And we're going to have all of these great things. And it's not a problem to have, have, you know, for a Christian to like coffee. It's not a problem to have well-done music. Of course, that's not necessarily what we're talking about when we're talking about seeker-friendly churches, but high production value type stuff, right? We're talking about really high production value. Talking about guys who hire professional Graphic designers, professional musicians, professional music producers in order just to do a Sunday service. And what are they doing? What are they doing but appealing through the lust of the flesh? Now, it's not a bad thing to make sure that what we do is as unto the Lord. It's not a bad thing to make sure we do everything to the best of our ability. That when we sing, we sing as unto the Lord. We sing with the best of our ability. That we make sure that when, when we have our pianists, that our pianists are actually capable of playing so that they don't become a distraction to worship. We want to make sure that we reflect in the manner of our, of our worship the beauty of God's holiness. But there's a big difference between that and saying the way that we're going to get people into this church is through a business model is by drawing people in with the same things that, are, that, that carnal advertisers, by hiring a marketing agency to see how you can get more people into your church. Have the right slogans, have the right banners, have the right sign, have the right, uh, uh, the right logo. Make sure that your YouTube videos are under a certain amount of time and have the right clip and everything else, and all of those things. Okay, all of that's interesting and fine and well and good in its place. But if we are relying upon a business model, we've fallen into flesh. And the people that are being spoken of here are drawing people in through the lust of the flesh, not just immorality. Remember, wolves in sheep's clothing. 
There may be some churches that are out there explicitly operating in immorality and sexual wickedness and drawing people that way, but that's not how you're going to draw the kind of people the false teacher's trying to draw. He's trying to draw people who are clean escaped from those who live in error, people who are genuine and seeking the truth, and they find these people, and these people are winsome, and they're charismatic, and they're interesting to listen to, and they're, they're really well put together in every way, and they've got great production value, and they've got all of these carnal, uh, um, uh, the, the, these carnal advantages to, to their particular setup, and they draw people in through these things. And that's just as much the lust of the flesh, is it not? That's just as much the drawing of the carnal part of a man. The flesh wants to feel superior through unjust judgment, unrighteousness. So maybe the lust of the flesh through which this false teacher is actually drawing people is the the lust of the flesh that is unjust judgment. Maybe the guy is very good at developing an us versus them mentality. He's extremely abrasive. He's ready to get up and say, anybody who does not believe what we believe is on the outside of God's grace and of God's mercy. And he creates an us versus them. And the people who are angry and alienated, maybe at the government, maybe at society, maybe at whoever it might be, they're drawn to this angry preacher. And he, through the lust of the flesh, is drawing them in, feeding the carnal nature of their anger and their frustration at the society that is around them and drawing them into a greater degree of division the greater degree of anger, a greater degree of, of, of self-exaltation, of saying, we are the special ones. We are the righteous ones. And looking down at all of those poor people on the outside, saying, you guys just aren't worthy. Is that not the lust of the flesh? Is that not a drawing of the lust of the flesh as well? The flesh wants to feel happiness through empty affirmations, through powerless mantras, is not simply a motivational speech, the lust of the flesh. A man who gets up every week and who does nothing, who says his, his commission before God is simply to make people feel good and to have them walk away feeling encouraged. And so he does nothing but speak to self-worth, speaking affirmations, speaking into yourself value and success. Is that not the lust of the flesh? The flesh is willing even to discipline itself into religious ritual, even self-denial, as long as it can remain alive and well in the heart. This is what many cults do. They have very, very strict expectations and rules. They have a high degree of discipline and top-down control. And it allures people that are looking for that stability, for that sense of direction, again, for that feeling as though they've got the, they've got the inside track on God's favor. But is that not the lust of the flesh? Is that not someone who is seeking power rather than seeking Christ? And maybe initially they were seeking Christ until they heard this man. And this man said, no, 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 no. This is the way. And all of these people who might have been seeking truth have been diverted. Diverted into carnality through these false teachers. These men, through their deceptive ways, ensnare those who desire this different path, who have chosen to follow what they desired to be the way of truth, 
And then that false teacher redirects their path into these false promises. And notice what it says here. That they promise them liberty, but they themselves are servants of corruption. These false teachers, they promise all of their listeners liberty. God, the things of God. But they have no idea how to point the way to it. Because they haven't received it themselves. And they're just as lost as the rest of the world. Seeking through personal affirmation, seeking through self-help, seeking through uh, fulfilling of the lusts of the flesh, seeking through uh, various distractions, seeking the ways to cope with the things that they're dealing with in life because they have no idea how to connect to the spiritual and cope in Christ. And they're trying to lead all of their people into some measure of hope when they have not found it themselves. They promise liberty, but they're in bondage. And a man in bondage cannot offer liberty to anyone else. Or at least he can't offer the way. Have there been many people in false churches who have found liberty? They, they have. Those people who hear the things that, that, that their false teachers are saying, but what they're actually doing is reading their Bible. And they found liberty. In spite of who they're listening to, not because of it. They appeal to the feelings of the flesh, to the emotions and affirmations, but passing them off as movements of the Spirit. Now, we've got one more chunk to read here, and this is where it gets most interesting. This is where we get most to Jesus' warning. Lord, Lord, have we not uh, prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? Have we not in thy name done many wonderful works? We see the fullness of that idea come to fruition in these last few verses. So we read beginning in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened to them, unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now these are perhaps the most controversial verses in Second Peter 2. Because many believe, very similar to what we talked about in Matthew chapter 7, that these verses insist that we're talking about people who were saved and then lost their salvation. You say, well, pastor, how could it be anything else? He's talking about people who have tasted of the heavenly gift. He's talking about people who have, who have been in the knowledge, who have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How is that, a per how is that not a believer? But remember our context. Context is so important. Who has Peter been talking about here? Who did he begin saying? False teachers. False prophets. Not true teachers. What did Jesus say about these false prophets? Depart from me. I never knew you. How did he describe them? Sheep. Wolves in sheep's clothing, right? 
Outwardly, they look like sheep, but inwardly, they are ravening wolves. They are not sheep. They are wolves. They have not been sheep on the inside. They are wolves on the inside. These are not people who were once saved and who lost their salvation. This is something much different, something much worse. I think Balaam in the Old Testament is perhaps the best description of this. Balaam was a man who talked to God, wasn't he? In Numbers. Balaam was a man who, when, when the, the enemies of Israel came and said, we need you to curse this people Israel, Balaam said, I'm going to consult God on this and what he says is what I'm going to do. And so he consults God and God says, do not go with them, do not curse this people. And you say, this must be a prophet of the living God. God is speaking to him. And then the people come back and Balaam says, I'm sorry, I can't uh, do this for you. And so they go away and they come back and they come back with more honor, with more honorable representatives and more money. And they say, we really want you to do this. And he says, let me ask again. Now, a true prophet of the living God would never ask again. He's gotten his answer. God's not going to change his mind. But he saw that money and he said, let me ask again. And so he goes to ask and God says, you can go with them, but you can't speak against this people. Wait a minute. Why did God change? Why did God allow him to go? God's the one that allowed him to go. And then as Balaam is on his way, right? He, he, he's, he's on his donkey. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in front of him about ready to kill Balaam. And so he turns aside and Balaam smotes him. He does that three times. The third time, there's no, there's no way for the donkey to go to the side. So the donkey just falls from underneath Balaam. Balaam is beating this donkey when the donkey is then mouth is opened by the Lord and the, the, the donkey explains. And then Balaam sees the angel of the Lord standing before him. And the angel of the Lord says, I'm so angry at you for going that I was going to kill you. And instead of Balaam hopping on that donkey and going back the other way saying, I get it, he says, oh, you don't want me to go? Well, what, what about now? Can I go now? And God says, okay, go. We call this the permissive will of God. It's not the focus of my time this evening. Well, again, we'll, we'll get here when we get into 2 Peter. At some point, who knows when. We've talked about the permissive will of God on Tuesday nights before. We'll talk about it again. The idea of the permissive will of God is that God is going to make clear to you what is right. But if you choose to reject it, God may very well open the doors to let you do wrong. If he's already told you what is right and you're going to walk in abject re rejection and rebellion, be afraid that he might actually just let you do it. He may not throw up roadblocks. He may just let you walk. Balaam is the consummate false prophet. So he gets to the Moabites and he does his best to curse the nation of Israel. Only God will not allow him to do that. And every time he attempts to curse them, nothing comes out but blessings. And then Balaam concocts a new way. He talks to these kings and he says, you know what? If God won't let me curse the nation of Israel, I can tell you how you can get, you can get God to curse them himself. Send harlots into the land of Israel. And they'll begin to promote wickedness among the people of God and God will curse his own people. That's the kind of man Balaam was. 
the kind of man who knew God enough to actually be able to speak with him in a prophetic manner, who was able to curse people and they would be cursed and bless people and they would be blessed. But in 2 Peter, he's called a false prophet. He's called a child of wickedness. He was an enemy of God's people and of God himself. Though he knew the system. This is the idea here. These are men and women who, when the Holy Spirit convicted their hearts and enlightened them to the truth of God's word, as the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of men, they fully understood, they were fully illuminated to the, the gospel and to the power that is found within it. God illuminated them. They understood this message of the gospel. They understood its power. But rather than receiving the gospel to themselves, when they received this illumination, they said, I can monetize this. I can take what I know of the things of the spiritual and I can fleece these people. They are people who have tasted of the heavenly gift. They are people who have received a knowledge of the Lord Jesus, not unto salvation, but they have tasted of that gift. But then they become entangled and overcome in the world in a much deeper way. They are overthrown in a much deeper way. The latter end is worse than the former because now they have made their choice. They have chosen the things of this world above the things of God and the people of God. They learned enough of God and of Christ to understand what Christians do and and the power under which they worked. Then they would call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, and they would prophesy in his name and they would preach in his name and they would cast out devils in his name and they would do wonderful works in his name, but they never bore the fruit of salvation. Christ never knew them because when the choice came, they turned from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And there are many in this world who never stop to consider the way of righteousness and so rest in unbelief. But these are not those types. These are the types that did consider the way of righteousness, that understood the, the, the path that was before them, that was a, they were illuminated to the reality that there is one true way and that Jesus is that way and that path is before them. And when they saw that path, they turned from it knowingly and said, that becomes my new investment. That becomes the new way that I am going to monetize Myself, I'm going to fleece the flock of God. I am going to make merchandise of them. Like a dog returning to his vomit. Like a washed sow returning to the mud. The Spirit of God illuminated their hearts to the truth. And they knowingly, purposefully turned from it so that they might instead fleece the flock of God. And while this illumination allows them to counterfeit the looks and the sounds of Christians... They cannot bear spiritual fruit. They cannot relate themselves to the spiritual because there's no spiritual life within them. And as we close, we do so with this renewed warning that when John says, try the spirits, whether they be of God, he says the reason why you need to try the spirits is because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The reason why it's so important that we are, are, are careful about the, the message, the ideologies, the philosophies, the preaching, the teaching that is entering into you and the source of it is because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Let us determine in our hearts not simply to look for words, not simply to look for works, but to look for 
fruit. The fruit that is only produced in those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The, the, the fruit of one who bears the marks of the spiritual, not the religious, not the moral, the spiritual. And may God not only protect us as we rightly identify the many false teachers who claim to represent Christ in this world, but may he also help us to protect others who walk indiscriminately into the paths of those who sound good and do good, but bear no spiritual fruit. They exist to fleece the flock of God. Now, Peter makes it very clear, Jude does as well, their damnation is coming. And they will have a very, very fearful judgment day. But the problem is that it's coming one day. And until it does, they're taking people with them. And may God protect us and those we know from such a fate. May we take this very seriously. Because in these last days, as we considered this morning, evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the fact of the matter is, especially in this day, as we talked again this morning of the, of, of the internet and of the proliferation of information, there are far more wolves than there are shepherds in our world today. May God help us to distinguish between them with the help of his word and his spirit. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.